Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. You're listening to a show that is all about ideas, about the search for wisdom and knowledge through conversation. My guests all have something to say and have the credentials to say it persuasively. Here, the conversation continues. Thank you for joining me for the latest episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Streaming from the beautiful halls of Thales College, this is The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Jenna Robinson, president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. Jenna received her PhD in political science from UNC Chapel Hill back in 2012. She is the author of numerous articles published in Investors Business Daily, Forbes, American Thinker, Carolina Journal, the Gaston Gazette, the Mountain Express, and the Raleigh News and Observer. She has taught courses in American politics at UNC Chapel Hill, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Wake Technical Community College. Jenna is a returning guest. Uh, if you want to hear more of her strong analysis about the college world, be sure to check out her previous Optimistic Curmudgeon episode. That's back in Season 3, Episode 2, entitled On Higher Education and the University. Today, we're discussing an article Jenna wrote for the Martin Center about the connections between accreditation, DEI, and requiring colleges to conform to the current woke orthodoxy. Jenna, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Well, before we get into everything, uh, give us a quick update about your work with the Martin Center. What new and exciting things are happening over there these days? Well, I think the Martin Center's biggest news is that 2023 is our 20th anniversary. And so we are really excited about that. So uh, later this uh, this fall, we're going to be celebrating. We're having Governor Scott Walker come to Raleigh uh, to talk about how higher education is not a lost cause. Higher education can be saved um, and highlight some of the work that Martin Center's done to um, to work towards that end. Oh, that's so exciting. I know uh, the big anniversary moments are really significant, and I'm really excited to hear that you guys have made it to 20 years. That's excellent. Yeah, thank you. Well, I wonder if today we could start with a summary. Um, could you help our listeners know what happened recently at Chapel Hill, and why did you decide to write an article about it? Sure. So over the past year or so, we had written several articles about all of these really comprehensive DEI programs that were being implemented at various departments and schools at UNC uh, there was one at the journalism school that we wrote about, one at the medical school, one at the Gilling School of Health, and they all looked really similar. Um, they were doing everything from mandating training to influencing the curriculum, um, and they all kind of cropped up around the same time. And then we got a tip that it wasn't a coincidence that all these programs kept popping up. Hmm. They were being done in response to a directive from the chancellor of UNC to address systemic racism. Um, and so basically he sent an email to all his you know, department heads back in 2020 telling them, essentially, you need, to, you need to do something to address systemic racism. UNC needs to do something to address systemic racism. Uh, how can we do that? Um, and so we, you know, we, we found that email and found all of the responses to that email, which really do show like that all of these programs we keep seeing are in response to this directive. So I wonder if we could unpack that just a little bit, because there's there's and that that email then is not asking departments to investigate if there is, in fact, systemic racism in their practices. That's instead a directive from the highest authority in the university telling people 
there is systemic racism in your department. You need to fix it. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Hey, yeah, absolutely. It's not to investigate it. It's assuming there is systemic racism, assuming that Chapel Hill is systemically racist and that it is imperative that you know, every unit of the university does something about it. Um, you know, specifically, what are the diversity, equity, and inclusion metrics that you are going to implement to address systemic racism in your unit or in your department? Now, I always have trouble with the the state the accusations of systemic racism because I've I've certainly met individuals who are personally racist and they they will employ those racist attitudes in their various domain, domains in life, uh, but it's really hard for me to recognize that there there just is the to deal with this assumption that there must be racism and therefore we have to change it. Right, right. Sometimes it sounds like. You know, when, they, when people talk about systemic racism, it's like just racism is just in the ether. Um, I Because I absolutely agree. If there are existing racist policies at UNC Chapel Hill, they should be eliminated immediately. Uh, but that's not what this email was about. It's not, you know, hey, we still have racist policies on the books. Let's get rid of those. Um, this is something kind of both bigger and more nebulous than that. Well, and it's it's all tied up, not just with systemic or accidental or individual racism, but it's all tied up in this acronym, DEI. Uh, you used that a moment ago and you spelled it out, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, could you help our audience know what exactly is DEI and how does its inclusion really pose a threat to academic freedom? Right. So it sounds really innocuous, right? Diversity, mm -hmm. inclusion. But the way it's practiced on campuses these days, it's really it's destructive of freedom of expression, academic freedom, equality of opportunity and meritocracy. So diversity as it's practiced today means that universities want students who look different um, and they are really um, kind of squashing all of a person's individual characteristics and focusing only on that kind of visual identity, racial identity. Um, and uh, as part of that, they also want students, as I said, who all look different, but think alike. Um, they all have to toe the, the DEI line. Um, and inclusion now kind of bizarrely is used to exclude people. So we get things like segregated student clubs, segregated dorms, even segregated academic programs. Mm. Um, and equity is strictly interpreted as equality of outcomes. So if the population is 50-50 male-female, then the expectation is that every program at the university needs to be 50-50 male-female. But that completely erases real human differences, right? And also the tools that the universities use to achieve this equity and outcomes decrease individual responsibility, they undermine hard work and meritocracy, and often the way that they do it is by destroying academic standards. Um, and the way all of this is applied today via, you know, top-down training uh, means that the students and the faculty aren't allowed to believe, speak, or teach freely. They, they have to toe the party line on all of these issues. I think this hits a lot of people really oddly because the language is so ironic. I mean, the, the terms are so positive and they're terms that our society has spent a lot of effort in the last, say, 50 to 80 years in really trying to accept and move towards. 
I mean, I think of diversity and my, my initial sense is that, oh, I want a diversity of opinion. I want people from diverse backgrounds. I want a lot of diverse views coming together because, of course, Proverbs reminds us that in the council of many, there is wisdom. I want that diversity of views. And I assume that, I mean, from the civil rights movement onwards, um, colleges have been attempting to form better ethnic diversity. But what you're describing is something really different. Uh, I, I really like your phrase, uh, only visual identity. But that visual identity isn't paralleled with a diversity of thought or even a diversity of backgrounds. But right. instead, we've got this, this homogeneity, this, this new orthodoxy that seems to permeate everything. I know I've run into this with uh, looking at different professor opportunities at colleges around the country. It's now become the norm to expect anyone applying for really any job with a very few exceptions in the, as a professor in the academy, you have to include your own diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. It's, it's no longer sufficient to be an excellent math professor. You have to explain how does teaching college algebra advance diversity, equity, and inclusion? Right, right. And it's it's not enough to say I will treat all of my students as individual, uh, you know, human persons, and will treat them with fairness and respect and dignity. You know that that doesn't cut it for a DEI statement. You have to. You really do have to, kind of, you know, show your fealty to to the ideas. It's such an interesting word, that fealty. That's that's going back to sort of a, a almost a medieval feudal sense of loyalty. Uh, it's it's almost a quasi-religious language where these principles have become a sort of new religion on the university campus. And I know there, we're, this is really beyond the scope of our conversation today. But I've had conversations with friends in corporate America, and it's just become ubiquitous in. Uh, that the same things you're mentioning, uh, these same kinds of universal trainings, everybody has to toe the party line, adopt the lingo. And in one sense, it's meaningless because it becomes just another thing to tick off on a list that you've done. But at the same time, um, these kind of directives are really formative for a culture. And they, they form a certain, they, they make it very clear what you're allowed to investigate, what you're allowed to explore, how you're allowed to speak. And that really seems to go against the very mission of academic inquiry at the heart of the modern university, which I, I just find fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's in corporate America. I think you're right. Every most people just treat it as you know checking the box, like any other HR activity they have to do. But I think it is particularly destructive in the university, where the whole purpose is the search for truth, and you have this ideology that is telling you that only certain truths are allowed to be investigated. Well, um, how how does DEI relate to accreditation? And I was this, this was this uh, part of your article got into that, and then I saw I ha I'll confess I haven't read it yet, but I saw that uh, the Martin Center put out another article just two days ago, particularly looking at the question of accreditation. So, mm -hmm. walk us through some of your your thoughts on on that relationship. Right. So, a lot of accreditors are now insisting that universities meet certain DEI metrics in order to retain their accreditation, and Accreditation for many schools is absolutely essential because, of course, accreditors are the gatekeepers of federal student aid dollars. Um, my colleague Graham Hillard actually just wrote a really fantastic article for National Review detailing some of the accreditors' demands. Um, and he walked through um, what the demands are for various accreditors. But they, they are still there a little bit vague, but they are 
all kind of paying lip service to this idea of DEI and that they're going to be looking for DEI as they do uh, the, you know, the accreditation process every 10 years. So well, I, I, let's go back for a second. You said uh, you, you gave us a reason for accreditation and it's different than the one I hear from parents and sometimes from students. I mean, parents and students tend to assume that accreditation is all about granting legitimacy and verifying the quality of education that happens at a college. But that's not what you told us a second ago. You said accreditors are the gatekeepers to national federal dollars. What's what's going on with that, the, with those two different purposes? Right. So accreditation was originally set up in like the late 19th century, early 20th century to distinguish legitimate universities from kind of glorified high schools um, that were pretending to be universities, but really were doing high school curriculum. But from the very beginning, it was a guild system. Accreditors are made up of member institutions and they get all of their money from those member institutions. And so if you think of it like a guild that is kind of a barrier to entry, um, you know, working together to protect the brand, you've got a much better idea of what accreditation is really like. Um, but their real power comes from the fact that in order for students to be able to use federal student loans or Pell Grants at your institution, they have to be accredited by an accreditor that is recognized by the Department of Education. So this really then is a big barrier to new colleges being founded and really experimenting. I mean, if if I wanted to start a new college that was actually different from the status quo, that was not trying to build climbing walls or grant 100 different undergraduate degrees and, and maybe five doctoral programs or something and didn't even want to have dorms in a cafeteria or a football stadium, if I wanted to start that kind of college that was actually different from what currently exists, then accreditation is really a barrier to my attempting to do that. Is that, is that right? It is absolutely a barrier. And we saw that played out several years ago when Western Governors University was trying to get accreditation because their big challenge was that they don't rely on the credit hour model. And accreditors were insisting that you have to have a certain number of credit hours. But of course, Western Governors says you can prove your mastery via a test we don't care about how many hours you spend in the class. It's about whether you can do the work. And so they had to, I mean, they had to really fight to get their accreditation and to have the Department of Education really change what they were looking for in order to even exist and be accredited. And so, yes, it is absolutely a barrier to experimentation into new models. That's really interesting because they were one of the early adopters of a competence-based model. And yeah. that's that's become sort of a, a pretty mainstream approach. I remember mm -hmm. uh, a friend I met at the, uh, the Acton University a few years ago, their, their Acton Institute Summer Conference. He was telling me all about the seminary he had just moved to to be a professor at that was based on competency. And they were they were trying to get people through a seminary degree in two years instead of four. And a competency-based model allowed them to do that because it really built upon the skills that some students built in undergrad while recognizing that other people were coming to biblical studies without Greek or Hebrew or Old Testament scholarship. But the folks who got those courses in undergrad don't need to repeat them in, in, in graduate work. Uh, they can test out and still get their credit hours. And uh, it, it allowed them to really try something different. 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think competency, competency based models, I think are a really great addition to uh, what universities offer. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that Western governors and others kind of went through the trouble to, to get it all approved, because like I said, it, it, accreditation is such a huge barrier. I wonder if you could walk us through some of the terminology for just a second. What, what's the difference between a national accrediting body versus a regional accrediting body? Are they the same? Do they, do they relate to the same principles in the same way? Or are they truly different? So these days, it's the same. Okay. For most of the history of accreditation, we had regional accreditors. And if your secular college or university was in a certain region, you had to use the accreditor in your region. Christian colleges do have an alternative. But for now, let's talk about most of colleges, which are either public or mm -hmm. private secular institutions. They were going through their regional accreditor, which was the accreditor in, in the same region that they were. So here in the Southeast, universities would have to use SACS, which is the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. But the system changed when Betsy DeVos had the part, Department of Education under President Trump, and she introduced competition between accreditors. And so now, just because you're in the Southeast doesn't mean you have to use SACS as your accreditor. And in fact, we're about to see that experiment play out because Florida has passed a law telling universities they can't get really cozy with their accreditors and they have to switch it up from time to time. So I think we're about to see uh, that in action as Florida's universities um, switch accreditors. Mm. Um, but in addition to those regional accreditors, which now we could call national accreditors, I think there's probably confusion because the terminology people are still using the old term regional accreditor, even though they're all national now. Um, but there are also disciplinary accreditors for med schools, for nursing schools, journalism schools. And some of those disciplinary accreditors are also very powerful. The LCME, which is the Liaison Committee for Medical Education, is the gatekeeper for medical licensure. So you can't have a med school without LCME's seal of approval because your medical students are not allowed to sit that licensure exam to become doctors unless they've gone to a medical school that is accredited by the LCME. And so some of these uh, disciplinary accreditors are just as powerful as the, uh, the national accreditors because they're gatekeepers in their own way to certain professions. So each of these accreditors then or accrediting bodies become an external organization that a school has to submit to in order to get that uh, guild card membership then. Okay. Right. Uh, that's I find that really, really interesting because I've, I've been watching um, increasing headlines, primarily from right wing conservative websites that are really concerned, particularly about uh, medical schools and the way that progressive ideology is now being insisted upon by these medical accrediting bodies that are then filtering down into what is actually taught in medical schools, such that to the point where so. All of this seems to have started in with the best of intentions. And yet the reality of accreditation is that it's become a system that really enables external control over different colleges and organizations. And then uh, while also creating all of these different ideas that can be built in, uh, whether they're actually there in the school or not. So that a college like UNC Chapel Hill, that I, I have students there uh, who, who are now uh, several several friends of mine who are now uh, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors this year. And 
we, we keep in touch. None of them have experienced any particular racism. Uh, in fact, the uh, the Supreme Court this past summer did find that if there was racism, it was in the it was in the admissions process, right. not in any of these particular departments that are now uh, responding to DEI. And that that admissions process that the Supreme Court overturned could itself, I assume, be interpreted as an attempt to create a certain kind of diversity that the Supreme Court has now said is illegal. Right, right. Um, so I think that the the Supreme Court decision, uh, it's, I'm gratified that UNC is, is has plans to follow it, has said they will follow it, have, has passed a resolution to follow it. Um, and I think it will it will go a long way to changing attitudes because I think for a long time people assumed that um, you know their ideas about what DEI was, what inclusion was, um, would kind of always be the way that things were done. I mean, universities are a bit of a um, kind of closed system where everybody is in a little bubble of thought. And so I think the Supreme Court decision did a little bit to burst that bubble and make people think of things in a different way. Well, it seems to me that the, the higher ed market is ripe for disruption, that it's a great time for new college models to try things and, and really see what works. Um, I, I'm part of one of those college experiments. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're recording today uh, from Thales College. And uh, we, as Thales College, we're proudly unaccredited. Our, our founder, Bob Luddy, absolutely detest the accreditation process. Uh, and he, he argues that we need the freedom to build something new and something different. Um, so with all that being said, I'm curious about your opinion on this. Um, do you think accreditation is still necessary? Was it, is it something that just could be done away with completely or does it still serve a purpose? So the one function that accreditors seem to still be doing is being a financial watchdog. Uh, they are often the body that sounds the alarm when a small college is having financial difficulties that, you know, parents and students don't necessarily know about. But other than that, they don't seem to be doing much. They allow colleges to dumb down their curriculum. They have, they allow colleges to continue to be accredited despite terrible graduation rates. Um, we have accredited colleges that leave students with mountains of student debt. Um, and so, they aren't really assuring quality. All they're assuring is that there's like some baseline form of financial stability, which is a really, really low bar. I mean, I'm sure we all remember that UNC Chapel Hill offered fake courses to athletes for years and the accreditor did nothing. I mean, I think if, you know, if, if a creditor, if an accreditor looks the other way when something as egregious as fake classes happens, then you know that they're not serious about academic quality and, and ROI for students. Um, they're just um, they're just playing a game. And so I, I do think that we could go without accreditation. Um, there are laws and rules in place at the Department of Education level about um, about loans already. Um, if a college has too many students in default, they can no longer get federal loans. I do think that those rules are a little bit too lax. You have to have like 30% of your students in default before they pull back the, the federal loans. So yeah, it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty easy to maintain your, um, your access to federal loans, but, you know, using that system, the federal government could police 
access to loans without all this rigmarole of accreditation. Well, that, that is really interesting. I wonder if you could expand just a moment on when you said um, uh, accreditation allows or permits colleges to dumb down their curriculum. Do you, do you have any examples of that you can help us with? Sure. So I think that the, I mean, the biggest is just looking, you know, historically at what colleges and universities used to teach, mm. um, you know, at the turn of this, at the turn of the last century compared to what they're teaching now, we actually have a report coming out very soon about general education curriculum. Mm. And if you look at how prescriptive it was um, in the early part of the 20th century, when general education really became a phenomenon, and what it is now, there's there's a huge difference. Uh, you know, early on, it would it would really be prescriptive in saying you have to take these certain math classes, you have to read the great books, you have to take philosophy, including reading the classics, um, you have to take courses in logic, in literature, and nowadays they kind of you know, pretend that you have to take classes in all of those disciplines, but in most places it's just a smorgasbord, like. Pick a few classes from each bucket, plug them in, shop around for easy A's, and you can get through general education curriculum. Um, I think we also see a lot of schools that are specific. They're they're saying we're going to get rid of the GRE, we're going to get rid of the SAT, um, we're going to get rid of the academic standards that we've used for you know the better part of the 20th century, the first part of the 21st century. Because we now think that, you know, those are those are not compatible with our um, our inclusion and equity goals. And so I think that there are there are a lot of examples of of dumbing down. We've also there have been studies showing students don't study as much. Students can't pass citizenship tests. Students, you know, think that Judge Judy's on the Supreme Court. I mean, it just there's just a litany of evidence out there you can go <laughs> and look for it. Uh, that's fascinating. I that that reminds me of uh, I, I had a moment so several years ago in a uh, a senior seminar class I was teaching. I pulled up the entrance exam for uh, to Harvard and it had to been like eighteen eighty five or something. Uh, yeah, like I seen that one. It's like yeah, yep, right and, around that time. Yeah, we were just I I, I had students at that year who were they didn't think they would get in, but they were just kind of of the well, I'm going to apply to Harvard and see if they see if I win the lottery with this application mm -hmm. kind of ilk. And we just went through and looked at it. I mean, then the Harvard entrance exam, I think, required uh, you could pick Hebrew or Latin, but you needed to be able to sight read a provided passage that you didn't get in advance. Uh, you needed to already be well versed in algebra and geometry such that you could pass an entrance exam. And there, there was a list of, I think, 24 novels, perhaps, or maybe 50. Like classical history as well, Greek and Roman yep. history. They they just expected that you knew that coming in. And it's and on the one hand, I looked, I thought, well, man, I have a I had a master's degree at the time. I was like, I, I couldn't pass this test. I, this is humbling to me as well. But it also illustrates exactly what you're describing. And on the on the financial watchdog point, I, I watched with great fascination and and a bit of sorrow the uh, collapse of uh, King's College in Manhattan this last right. year. And they were a they were a Christian liberal arts college that tried to play the that certainly did play the accreditation game, mm -hmm. and it, that did not help them in any way, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. It certainly didn't. Uh, there was a fat. Their journalism school produced a masterful article as sort of the 
swan song and final project of their journalism program that just detailed the financial mismanagement over decades of that program. And it just, uh, that financial mismanagement, it seems like would have happened with or without accreditation, but attempting to be mainstream and be accredited did not help them really at all. Right. Um, well, as we draw our conversation to a close today, let's let's focus in on UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, where do you think UNC could go in coming years? Uh, what could they do to really change their course to create a strong academic environment where freedom of inquiry is placed back at the center of the university? Right. So since the chancellor sent that email, UNC has actually already made a lot of progress. They have a fantastic board of trustees right now who have done a lot of great work. They already have a green light from the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which means they don't have any policies on the books that are unconstitutional, that are in violation of the First Amendment. Um, Both the faculty and the Board of Trustees have adopted the Chicago principles, Mm -hmm. uh, which are committing them to free expression. Um, The board has also adopted the Calvin Report on Institutional Neutrality, which basically says that the university won't take positions on controversial political or social issues. Um, They've adopted a civility statement and the board of governors for the whole UNC system has uh, prohibited compelled speech and Mm. they are interpreting, the whole system is interpreting um, with good reason that mandating someone turn in a DEI statement for employment is compelled speech. So that is no longer allowed. Um, So they really have their policies, um, their policies are in great shape. Um, But from here on out, it's all about implementation. Um, They are, they have one line in freshman orientation about free speech. Mm. Uh, I think they could really make that more robust so freshmen know what free speech is coming in. Um, They still have some DEI trainings for students and they still have a, in their general education curriculum, students are required to take a power different, a course in power difference and inequality. And so that, that makes me think, is that really institutionally neutral if you're insisting that all of your courses, all of your students take a course in power difference and inequality? So there are definitely kind of cultural issues mm-hmm. and implementation issues that UNC needs to focus on. Um, but like I said, their policies are in great shape. And so from here on out, it really is the the battle of changing hearts and minds on campus of faculty, of administrators, of students, because we often hear that students are policing each other's speech. Mm-hmm. People are afraid of what their peers are going to say if they speak out. And so changing that culture is a lot harder than changing policies. No. Uh, changing policies, all it took was getting in a great group of trustees who were courageous enough to do it. Um, But changing a culture, I think, takes longer. It takes more, um, you know, more activities, more, um, more people. Just it's, it's a much bigger project. And that's where UNC is right now. It's a good place to be because a lot of schools don't even have half of the policies that UNC does to try to move back towards open inquiry and free speech. Um, But it's still, there's still a long way to go. Uh, Years ago, several years, I I think I was in college. My younger brother was visiting Chapel Hill as a student, thinking about maybe going there someday. That was his dream school for a time. 
And I remember we were on the, the campus tour and our tour guide took us through a, um, there's a, you'll know the name of this, this square, I'm sure, but it was a free speech square. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't remember the name of it, but there was a, uh, he made sure to tell us that this was specifically the free speech zone that, yeah. that students love coming. There were, and, and literally I remember uh, there were two students kind of, uh, I, I would call it preaching against each mm -hmm. other in a way. Like there was one yeah. student standing on a big rock who was uh, clearly a, an evangelical Christian student who was street preaching there. And on the other side of this area, there was a uh, student Marxist who was boldly <laughs> proclaiming the message of, of Marxist salvation. And uh, it was a free speech center. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would put that moment in contrast, at least the, the stories I've gotten from my former students who are now students at Chapel Hill, uh, is the classroom experience of the professor uh, requiring every student to introduce him or herself and, and give preferred pronouns. Mm -hmm. And it just creates this social pressure that whether you want to do that or not, it create it, it communicates that this is now polite and it's a form of, I think, of what you were calling compelled speech just a moment ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would love to see a Chapel Hill that instead of uh, using the position of the professorship to compel students to engage in that kind of ideological exercise, um, that instead, like, if that's going to happen, that happens because students decide to do that. And then students can decide whether or not uh, they, how they're going to interact with each other in that way. But I, it, it does seem to me to be an abuse of the professor's authority to sort of set up the classroom already, assuming that pronouns are not something that you just recognize, but instead have to provide and then abide by. Right. No, I think that's a, it's a really important point. The compelled speech resolution did not apply inside the classroom because it's a tough mm -hmm. area, right? You want to give faculty members academic freedom, but it is prone to abuse. Like if you use your academic freedom to uh, to compel your students to do something that is arguably, you know, an, an abuse of that freedom that you've been yeah. given. Um, and so, like I said, that's that's it would be better if the culture could change so mm -hmm. faculty realize, hey, I shouldn't be doing this rather than a top down mandate yeah. that you know that goes into that classroom. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I hope as as Chapel Hill's policies are more mature, as the implementation gets fleshed out, that faculty will, you know, kind of come to realize on their own that mm -hmm. this is not really compatible with an atmosphere of freedom of inquiry. No. And that really is the biggest win. I mean, a, a, even just a blanket university policy that's, uh, that traded one form of compelled speech for another is not really a win. Like it needs to be a campus organic uh, that organic culture is so valuable, but as you pointed out, it is a it is the work of years to shift that campus culture in one direction or another. Um, well, Jenna, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, where can people find and follow your work online? Right. So on the web, you can find us at jamesgmartin.center, and you can find both me and the Martin Center on Twitter at at jrobinson1 and at academic renewal. Thanks, Josh. Excellent. Well, thank you listeners for joining us today for another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Jenna Robinson, president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. If you like this episode, please do leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. 
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. If you want to let me know what you thought about the episode, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Your host is Josh Herring. Madison Kay is our audio engineer. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.